From PRX's Radiotopia, this is the Memory Palace. And welcome to the ninth and penultimate episode of the summer season. We've got this one, then next week, and then a break. Back for more in the middle of October. This episode, and every episode this whole summer, has been made possible by Squarespace. The place to go to make that website you've been wanting to get around to. Just get around to it. Squarespace makes it easy and fun with intuitive tools that non-coders can totally handle. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And when you sign up for Squarespace, make sure you enter the offer code MEMORY to get 10% off your first purchase. At squarespace.com, use offer code MEMORY. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Squarespace, helping us restore the moon bridge over the koi pond here at the palace. There are very, very few tickets left to my live show on the 11th of September here in Hollywood. Visit thememorypalace.us if you want to buy them. Also, if you have a minute, why don't you fill out a quick survey at surveynerds.com slash thememorypalace. It's simple and uh, unobtrusive, and it will really help me out. Uh, There's a link to surveynerds.com slash thememorypalace at my website as well. Anyway, here's episode 74, Craning. This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. A postcard from Brevard County, Florida, dated July 16th, 1969. The traffic was backed up for miles, for days. After midnight the morning of, T-minus 10 hours, people just started giving up, abandoning their cars, setting out on foot, lit by headlights, scored by car radios, Pontiacs idling, bumper to bumper to bumper to bumper, on the narrow road beside the ocean. The road itself had come a long way. In the 10 years and change since the United States had come to Brevard County to launch the rockets. Back then, 58, 59, sand would sweep over the two-lane road. Marsh grass would push up through the cracks, ripple in the slipstream created by juttering trucks laden with rocket parts and rocket fuel, by cars with government plates, carrying rocket scientists and astronauts and engineers, riding with the windows down, maybe letting their flattened palms ride the salt breeze, knowing exactly which forces were at play as they moved them up and down. There were four lanes now, far fewer than needed on this day, with a million people here, or nearly here, or turning around and driving away from here, disappointed that they weren't going to see Apollo 11 take off in person. The 3,500 hotel rooms in Cocoa Beach and the other beach towns were full, had been for months, as were the campgrounds, and the beaches themselves, and the parking lots, clearings in the woods off the road, packed with tents and trailers, station wagons with their tailgates down, for hibachis, for the feet of taller children in sleeping bags in the back, waking up with the morning light, on the morning men were going to the moon. President Nixon was at home, watching in the Oval Office. But his predecessor was there, in the bleachers set aside for VIPs. Hard to think of a more IP, really, than LBJ, there in his blue suit. No sunglasses. Just that Texas hill country squint. Still answering to Mr. President, of course, but perhaps not quite used to it, not quite meaning what it did just months before. But still, to be here, and be congratulated, rightly, for getting the space program to this point, on the brink of history, real history, human history, when the whole thing could have gone off the rails so many times in the last 10 years. He had kept it going, 
Despite the costs and the scientific hurdles and the dead astronauts, Grissom, Chaffee, White, killed in a routine test, and the others, Freeman and C and Bassett and Williams and Lawrence, just flying their jets as part of their jobs, and a dead president. So much of this was his dream. So much of this day was cooked up and kicked around in the White House all those years ago. Not that many, really. Must have felt like more. Feet up on the desk. Bobby there, too. Dead now, too. But Johnson kept that dream alive. Made sure the train kept rolling, even when so much else had gone so wrong these last years. So many other dreams had been put on hold. Not space, though. He kept to the terms of the pledge. Jack Kennedy's promise to land a man on the moon before the decade was out. It was ballsy. Semi-arbitrary. Certainly ill-advised. But here they were. And here was Walter Cronkite, as always, calling the launches since Shepard in 61. And here were the rest of them, the press, the usual suspects, and the fellows who just came in for the big ones. Wasn't that long ago that they were all big ones. But with Vietnam, and Bobby, and Dr. King, Berkeley, Columbia, the riots, that Manson thing, just a few weeks before, all of it, what's another rocket? But this was the moon. 2,000 press passes had been handed out to people from everywhere, every language, all taking up space, taking up your usual spot, the place you like to put your typewriter and your ashtray, thwarting your plan to kick back for a second and ask that guy you run into at these things to ask them if they got a load of Johnny Carson and what's his name, the big guy, Ed McMahon in the box. Must have been something for those two. They'd been making jokes on TV about all these guys, all the astronauts, LBJ, since 62. And here they were, right there with them, not on one of the boats that clogged the canals of Mosquito Lagoon or bobbed off the beach, where Alan Shepard, the first American in space, was on that morning meeting Charles Lindbergh, his childhood hero, the man who made him want to fly, in one of just a handful of people who knew what it meant to be a vessel of other people's dreams, and who knew what it meant to live within those dreams, who knew the cold above the North Atlantic, or the heat of re-entry, or the banality of days upon days upon decades, earthbound. But this was a day unlike any other, even the locals there on that beach knew it, no matter how many launches they'd watched from that beach in the last 10 years. Of course, some of them weren't allowed on that beach 10 years ago. It wasn't desegregated until 64, when the VIP with the Hill Country squint and the bleachers signed the Civil Rights Act, which let people dream a bit bigger, but couldn't keep them from killing Martin Luther King at 39, or Martin Chambers at 19, a kid from Tampa who stole a camera and got shot in the back. And then there was a riot. One of so many. Hard to keep a dream in sight with so much smoke coming off your cities. Ralph Abernathy was working for that dream right there on that road, by the ocean. The man who took the reins of the SCLC after King's murder. There he was leading a mule and 150 protesters past the parked cars and the tailgaters and the lemonade stands. Calling foul and the whole thing pointing out how many cities could be rebuilt, how many citizens could be fed, taught, trained for jobs, but for want of the money for one rocket ride. But even he couldn't help but look up 
When the countdown counted down, how could he? Everyone stopped. The guy flipping moon burgers at the moon hut, the woman washing sheets at the satellite motel, people who'd moved down here because they heard there were going to be jobs, people who'd dreamed of a better life, but maybe hadn't quite gotten there yet. They all looked up, those million people, and saw the flash and heard the roar and felt it all in their bones as 7.7 million pounds of thrust pushed down on the earth and up went three men, vessels of dreams, on the way to the moon and they all craned their necks as the rocket rose and rose and held their breath, held it all for a minute there, craning, until the glint in the sky traveled beyond the limits of their vision. And they looked away and wondered if they should wait out the traffic or just leave now and slog through.